Welcome everyone to Season 1, Episode 3 of the On Path Podcast. Every episode of the season features a conversation with a guest about their life and career to date, the path they're on. In this episode, I speak with Lizzie Gardner, a senior product manager at the mobile analytics and attribution company Singular. She currently lives in Israel, where she moved to and learned Hebrew from scratch. Lizzie actually grew up in Venezuela for the first 18 years of her life but had to leave to Canada for university and hasn't visited much since leaving. We chat about having to leave a country you love and the challenging transition to a new place, both in terms of the practical everyday stuff and the vast cultural differences. Lizzie has a really intriguing life story and she shares with us how she's taken things head on. I hope you enjoy. As always, thank you for listening. Hey, Lizzie. Thank you for being here. We get to chat again, and you're the first product manager on the show. So welcome. Oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> so I want to start off with art history, which is what you majored at in the University of British Columbia. And my question for you is, what made you decide to study art history, and what did you get from that experience? Sure. I think basically what happened to me is something that happens to a lot of people is that when you start university at a young age, maybe you don't have a clear path of of what you want to do or what kind of career you want to have, but you have general interests in liberal arts. And I mean, I think for me, I actually really enjoyed going to university like the, the actual classes, um, which is, makes me a big nerd. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Like at first I just took a bunch of like history classes and literature classes. And, and then I somehow ended up taking art history and, and it was something that I really enjoyed. And I thought, Oh, maybe I could have a career in this somehow. And so, I, but it was never like, I never had a preconceived notion of what I, I was going to do with that degree. So I, I kind of happened upon art history, to be honest. And, and I, I fell in love with it and, and yeah. Cool. Yeah. So I took some courses on art history as well in my bachelor's. And I think those were among my, my favorite courses. Also because we had a professor who was just so inspiring and so into it. Um, yeah. And th- that makes a big difference. 100%. I didn't really take advantage fully of my experience because I, I think I, I was a bit too shy. And so often I missed a lot of opportunities where like I, I wish I could have picked the brain of my professor for <laughs> another 10 hours uh, a day. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I did have that where actually I ended up focusing on Chinese art history, which sounds very random. But if you've been to British Columbia, it actually makes sense because there is a huge influence of Chinese immigrants. And we had an amazing department of, of Chinese art history. And so it was, I thought it was just fascinating. And I think that that, that overall, that was my experience in, in Vancouver in Canada, when I moved there that I just became obsessed with learning about these different cultures that I'd never been exposed to. And I think art history is such a great way of doing that because you basically are studying the things of the culture to understand their history better. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what I ended up doing. So let's talk a little bit about what you work on right now. You work in product management. Yes. And how do you explain product management to someone outside the field? Sure. So product management is really going to differ from company to company and industry to industry. But the way that I see it is you're really kind of the middle person between the business side and R&D or like the engineers. 
So you have to have very interesting and eclectic set of skills because you have to be really good at being able to talk to clients. If there, Some roles are more client-facing, so you have to be able to understand all the business requirements of your clients and understand what they need and then be able to prioritize that. And then you have to translate that into a product and work with designers, UX teams, copywriters, and then build something that is then and take it to the, the R&D team and explain to them, help them prioritize what's the, like, the minimum valuable that you want to release and the limited amount of times that you have and the limited amount of resources that you have. There's a lot of communication involved, a lot of planning involved, a lot of also kind of dreaming up things, which is the, the more fun part. But it changes very much like the scope of what you focus on changes in each company. And so you mentioned communication and how is it working with engineers where they're not necessarily reporting to you? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting role. Um, and it, it kind of varies depending on like the team that you have. Um, and But I kind of love that because like you can do with it what you want, okay? So I know pretty, plenty of product managers where they totally do not like the managerial aspect of it. And they're like, you know, I talk to the team leader and then they decide how to manage it. Um, but then there are more hands-on product managers where it's kind of like a matrix management, I guess you could call it, uh, where you you are telling them what to do and you and you do want to encourage them and you want to help them grow and and be better as a team. Um, so it is it is definitely a gray area. Um, I I do my best not to uh, step on anyone's toes, <laughs> but I I I am like always thinking about like okay, well you know, how can I encourage the team? How can I help them get different skill sets? How can I help them be happier? It's more like a manager's hat, you know? Um, and But at the same time, always working with the team leader um, to help them do what they need to do. Because at the end of the day, you are not their manager. <laughs> yeah. 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 One of the interesting things I find about product management is that software engineers, they oftentimes have studied CS in school or designers have studied graphic design, but product managers really come from a very varied background. Would you say that's the case in your company as well? Or It's really interesting because I think that a lot of companies, sometimes they focus on trying to get a product manager that was a developer. It really depends on, on what is the role exactly, but I, I kind of like it when people come from a different background because I think that a lot of being a product manager is being creative and really kind of thinking outside the box. And sometimes, you know, like I've worked with product managers that used to be photographers. I've worked with product managers that studied physics. You know, I've worked with product managers that studied all sorts of things. And I think that coming from a different perspective really kind of helps you think differently and, and, and be more creative about what you need to get done. I love meeting new product managers and hearing their story and how they do things at their company and, and what's their background and, and how they approach problems. Cause, cause you're right. It, it is very kind of unique role and it can be filled by a variety of people. Yeah. Uh, and could you tell us a little bit about Singular? If you look at the clients, there are all these household names, but maybe Singular itself isn't as well known outside the tech world. Yeah. So Singular started as an analytics company focusing mostly in the mobile app industry. We help mobile app developers pull in all their cost data and combine it with their attribution data. So basically your attribution data is like everything that has to do with 
the tracking like the app was installed, the app was opened, an in-app purchase was made. And so that you want to be able to measure what is the full ROI of your marketing activity. So that was like the initial grain of what Singular was. And then eventually we also became an attribution uh, company as well. So we also have an SDK that app developers install. And now we're moving into like the web area. So we focus on helping app and web marketers do their analytics. And who's typically the buyer? So we, we have a strong foothold in gaming. So that's really our bread and butter. But we also have lots of different kinds of clients coming in that are focusing more on brands. So things like Nike or, or Lyft or Airbnb or DoorDash that usually also have a mobile app and then a web focus. The bigger gaming clients are like Rovio, King. I don't know if, if you're into the gaming world at all. <laughs> but uh, so we have lots of uh, big uh, gaming clients as well. And that's, that's really where, where I kind of come from, because before I worked at Singular, I worked at, a, at an ad network that focused on gaming. So that's, that's my focus mostly. Um, and, and I kind of love it. It's really uh, a very unique set of people that work in uh, mobile gaming development. Since we're talking about mobile games, what's your favorite mobile game? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I have an answer for that. So enough about product management. I want to talk about your origin story. So um, we met in Venezuela where we went to high school together. And my first question is, how was it growing up in Caracas? Well, it's, it's so, I think about it a lot, to be honest, because it, it just feels after all these years, uh, very surreal to think that, you know, this, that's where I come from and that's where I grew up. Um, so Actually, so my family isn't Venezuelan. My my mother is Peruvian and my father is Canadian. But I was born and, and grew up in Venezuela until I was eighteen. Um, and so I think I ha I can't. I'm not a typical Venezuelan because you know I, I went to an English speaking school and my parents weren't Venezuelan. Um, so I I definitely had a unique upbringing even in Venezuela and and parts of it like. I, I loved my childhood as much as I was very protected. And there are certain experiences that, you know, when I tell people like, oh, yeah, when I grew up, I lived in a gated house and in a gated community. And like, I didn't learn how to ride a bike until <laughs> I was like 15. And I didn't actually ride a bike until I moved to Canada. So things like that sound crazy. But but there, there was something else. I don't know. Um, there was this beauty that existed in, in Caracas and like, experiencing just the culture that was there and the way that people related to each other. I think that ultimately this is why I ended up in Israel because I very much missed the connection between people that you have in, in South America. Like I felt like my life in Canada, people are very different. They're much more insular and they're not as open to uh, being friends, I guess. Um, and, and that's what it, that's what drew me to Israel is that people here are also very like open and in your face <laughs> and chaotic. And, and apparently I love that, <laughs> but specifically like, yeah, I don't know. I, I growing up there, it, it's a very surreal experience where there is a lot of beauty and a lot of chaos. And, and when that's the only thing, you know, that, you know, that it is what it is. Yeah. I was only there a couple of years just for high school, but one of the things that I really remember is the stunning natural beauty. Yeah. And yeah. just how accessible it was. 
Yeah, I know. It's it was amazing, you know, like you would wake up and you would see like these beautiful macaws flying across the sky and there's just so much nature everywhere. And that, and that's something that, you know, living in a city now, like I, I very much miss. Um, <laughs> and I, I remember that my biggest fear when I was a kid was that I would have to leave Venezuela. Like I, I, I really appreciated it while I was there. And, um, and then it came true. So, <laughs> so have you been back at all? So my parents stayed in Venezuela for another, I think, five or six years after I left for university, but then they moved. And so after that, I, I didn't go back. So yeah. yeah, I haven't been back in a very long time. Yeah. yeah. So we graduated and you moved to Canada. And so what took you to Canada? So I actually really wanted to stay in Venezuela, but my parents were like, no way, you're, you have to go, which in itself is a very traumatic thing. I think personally, especially if you grow up uh, so close to your family, the idea that at 18, when you're still very, very much feel like a kid to be told, okay, now you're going to go study by yourself in a very far away country. That was very hard for me. And I think that I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be because I spoke the language. So I felt like, well, I speak the language, you know, how hard could it be? But having to I mean, there's the whole challenge of, you know, growing up, becoming an adult, all of that. And then you're moving to a different place, making new friends and all of that. But then on top of that, it's like navigating the different cultures and like not realizing it. And I still have a very specific memory in my mind of like I lived on campus in a campus that's uh, the, the dorms are like in the middle of a forest. <laughs> so to get from like the bus stop to the campus, you have to walk 15 minutes through a forest which is, sounds like beautiful and idyllic, but like for someone growing up in South America, that sounds incredibly dangerous, you know? And I remember like I would, I had to learn how to walk because I would check over my shoulder every two seconds to make sure nobody was following me or I would walk with a cigarette lit in case somebody wanted to jump me. And you know, you have this, it sounds so terrible, but it's like you have this uh, lifestyle in your head of like, life is dangerous and I need to constantly be aware of what's happening. And then you move to a country where it's so safe and you can walk around freely. And especially like as a woman that, you know, to feel safe walking at night through any part of where you are, like that is so amazing. And it took me like, that's a beautiful thing that I got from living in Canada and like the freedom that I felt from being able to go to Canada is something that, this is why I've never moved back to South America because I have never been able to experience that freedom of I can be alone, I can take care of myself and no one's going to try to, you know, kidnap me or <laughs> point a gun at my head and try to take my money. And I've had enough of those experiences in my life to feel like I don't ever want to go back. But at the same time, like, yeah, like I mentioned, I think that living in Canada can also be very challenging because people are very... Um, like more introverted than I think, generally speaking, at least South Americans are. And so it was very hard. I felt like I was missing that connection. And, and I think something that happens a lot when you first move to a country is you end up looking for what you know, right? So you end up sticking to the like immigrants from the same area from where you are. So like when I first moved to university, I, I went with all the Latin kids, you know, but then then you're not really immersing yourself in the culture because you are sticking to what you know. And 
people, it's a, now that I've moved around, I realize how hard it is to not criticize the new place where you live in, where you're always comparing it to what you know, and you have to break from that to really start loving where you live. And that is really hard to do if you're only hanging out with people from a culture that you know, that you're familiar with, and all they do is talk about what it's like back home. So that was like something I had to learn and figure out. And, and yeah, that was a process and that's hard. (laughs) Yeah. And so then you left the Americas and you moved to Israel and it sounds like you love it there. So (laughs) (laughs) tell us a bit about that move. Uh, That was a bit of a crazy move, to be honest. When I look back on it now and I'm like, oh, what would I tell myself (laughs) to be like, maybe think it through a bit more. No, but like it, it turned out well, ultimately. Um, like I, I moved here because I fell in love and I mean, part of it is, yeah, I fell in love, but part of it was like, yeah, there's something missing in Canada. And, and I, and I, and I found that here, it was incredibly challenging to move here. Um, because, you know, as much as I just told you my little sob story about moving to Canada and like having cultural challenges, uh, moving to a country where you don't speak the language and you don't know anything about the culture is even more challenging so even though I was very much enamored when I first came here with the culture and the people and everyone's so friendly and in your face and that's great basically I I had to start all over again because I didn't speak the language and I all of my career experience so far that I had in Canada meant nothing in Israel basically People in, in Israel are also very educated and more gearing towards the sciences, computer science, R&D, and things like this. So, you know, when you tell them that you have an art history degree, they're like, what? Why? <laughs> go, go work at a museum. And so that was a challenge. And in a way, I'm really grateful that I did it because it really helped me just know myself better and be stronger and I feel very happy with what I have been able to achieve here in Israel. And I think that having grit <laughs> is really important. And I cannot tell you how many like embarrassing and horrible things have happened to me before my lack of Hebrew. But, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm okay fluent wise. And um, I've managed. So you already had a like a basic level of Hebrew when you moved there, right? Absolutely not. <laughs> I hear nothing. <laughs> I'm Jewish on my grandmother's side, so I'm like a quarter Jewish, but it was not something that, like my grandmother married into a Catholic family and I was raised Catholic, so it's not, there's like a lot of Jews uh, all over the world that, you know, you go to like Hebrew school on Sunday and you study things and you understand the holidays, but I didn't have any of that. So I took like the, the what, are the, what are those, uh, audio classes that you can take the Rosetta Stones of the world right but those are so useless in my opinion the only way to learn a language is go live in that country you know and in three months you have learned way more than you studying years on Rosetta Stone and so so when I came here I I went to I just focused on studying Hebrew and so I, I went to like a Hebrew school for like six months and then after that I started working and that's really how I learned Hebrew. <laughs> wow. So so you're working in tech now. And in, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of tech, Israel seems like a great place to be in yeah. really a thriving tech scene. Yeah. When I first moved here, I lived in Haifa, which is like a city in the north. And 
in terms of learning the language, it was great because people don't speak English there. But then we moved to Tel Aviv and in Tel Aviv, it's easier. That's where the high tech bubble is. And once I got into high tech, I loved it. it it's possible that this is an, not an Israeli experience. And this is something that happens in lots of countries. But my experience so far is that what is fun about being here is that people are really entrepreneurial and people really want to help each other out. So you can be working for a small startup and the people, the connections that you make there will go with you wherever you, you end up so that no matter what job you are, you can always call the guy that you worked with on the phone and be like, oh my God, can you help me with this? I saw on LinkedIn that you're this. And, and people are so eager to help each other out and so excited about working on things. And people are crazy hard workers here. And, and I enjoy that. I like, I like that energy where, you know, we're, we're very eager to, to, I don't know, to prove ourselves. I don't know what it is, but it's like to build something fun and to share it with the world. And there's so many cool companies um, out there. So it's fun. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds, sounds great. It sounds like you found your, your place. <laughs> well, for now. <laughs> okay. I'm curious to know who are one or two very influential people in your life. And it doesn't have to be people, you know, personally. The first person that always comes to my head is my grandma. I think my grandmother is an exceptional person. She is like still around. She's 80, 80 85, I think now. Um, and she is in better health than probably I am. Um, and she's still working. She's still active. And I think about her all the time because I think to myself, like, well, how can I get to her age like that? And and not just that, that she's, you know, super healthy and fit and that's been her lifestyle always and, and I want to emulate that, but it's that she always did things her way, you know, like she actually had an actually similar background where she was Peruvian, but she was sent to boarding school in the U.S. So when she was in the U.S., she grew up as the foreign kid. <laughs> and, um, and I think that that kind of also made her very resilient. And then when she moved to when she moved back to Peru, she always was, you know, like just doing what she loved to do and doing it her way. And I really admire that. And, and I think that, you know, she's taught me a lot about resilience and, and, and grit and hard work. Did she share many stories with you about growing up? So we used to spend uh, a lot of our summers in Peru with my grandmother and we were very close to her and she was so always so creative and, and about like, she would write us stories and tell us stories about her childhood and about her father and, and her story. Because it's, it's also very unique. My grandmother comes from a, a German-Jewish background. And her father immigrated to um, South America after World War I. They, uh, he built a, a very successful hardware retail store chain in Peru. And when... World War II came about, he, like a lot of Jews were, you know, running away from uh, Europe and a lot of South American countries were turning them down. They didn't want to accept people. So you needed to get a work visa. So my great grandfather helped all these uh, Jewish immigrants, like mostly his family, but he, I think he brought over like more than 50 people to, to Peru that would have otherwise just died. So I think that that story, it's a family legacy that's like been imprinted on us where you have this idea that you make your own uh, future and you help each other out and family is important. And I think that's it shaped her and it shaped me, you know, and, and so that's 
always been an iconic person in my life, yeah. Okay, so uh, maybe moving on to life lessons. Now, uh, you, you found Israel, you found product management. <laughs> that makes it sound very fun. Like I've joined a, a, some sort of cult. I have. Product management in Israel is a cult, yes. Uh, and, and so through all this, what are some what are some life lessons you've learned for yourself? For me, um, the the hardest thing that 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 I've had to overcome, I guess, is um, I, yeah, I don't know. It's funny. Like I think a lot of times you end up like hitting conflict on the things that you specifically hate. If you have a weakness, if there's something that that tr- triggers you or makes you upset you keep crashing into it and it's not, you can either, you know, shrink from it or grow from it. And I think that that's something that, that I've realized over and over where I'm always like, Oh, you know, why does this keep happening to me? It's, it keeps happening to me because like I attract it. It's like a problem. It's me. It's not the world, you know? So for example, that's something that I, that I had to learn through all my experiences in Canada and in here is like how to deal with uh, being more confrontational. So if you are in disagreement with someone about you don't agree with them, what they're saying, or you have a problem with them, like my natural instinct is to want to, okay, just hide, like (laughs) to not face it, deal with it face on. And I think that probably that's why I was attracted to, to moving to Israel is because People here don't do that. Like they will face on, tell you what is the problem to your face and you might not like it, but at the end they still love you. And I think that that's been a really hard lesson that I've had to learn on, on how to be more confrontational and how to speak up and use my voice, even though I feel intimidated by it. I think it's still something that I'm learning. So yeah, and I think that Part of it is growing up, right? Like feeling more confident about your voice and about what you have to say. And at the same time, also like giving people space to to hear them, to listen to them and to communicate. And I think that that's something that you especially learn once you migrate, immigrate to a different country where, you know, you're always going to butt heads with people because they don't do things the way that you do them. And learning how to communicate that, to leave space for that and to explain to them what pains you from your perspective that's very challenging. And I think that it's a lesson that I've learned over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't know if, if that makes sense. To, no, that makes sense. I mean, I always think about like being able to discuss the issues, but without uh, making the other person feel attacked. Yeah. Yeah. That's a crazy life skill to learn. And I think that regardless of different uh, cultural backgrounds or or whatever, like that is the base of communication, be it like with your Mm. personal relationships or with your work relationships, like being able to understand that communication is not really just what you think you're saying, but what the other person is hearing you say. So even Mm. if I I say to you, you know, like the sky is blue, if you heard me criticizing the sky, like that's what you got from that sentence. And I, mm-hmm. then I'm not communicating it correctly, you know? And so I think that that's taken me a really long time. And I think, and I don't know, I think about it a lot also today with like, I feel like a lot of us are, are so divided, like politically, and we don't listen to each other. And, and we just assume the worst of each other. I don't know if that really serves us in terms of communication, you know, like to just be like, 
oh, you know, the other side, like, they're all idiots saying things like that. Like it doesn't really serve us to understand them properly and to to come together as a community, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah one thing that strikes me is sometimes I see people discussing things in a way that to me feels overtly aggressive but then after that they just go have lunch together and everything's normal and it kind of depends on the situation and culture whether you know sometimes you can like in some places it's okay to yell at each other <laughs> and then but yeah. that's not that's not yeah. taken personally and in other places that would that would not at all be okay yeah it's it's a fine balance but here that's totally the the case you know like it's funny I talk about this with my manager a lot because it's like uh, we'll go into a meeting and one person will just be yelling, you know, I can't believe you did that. And then at the end of the day, it's like, okay, well, yeah, let's go have lunch. And then yeah. I will get upset and I'll, and I'll hold it in, you know, like I won't say anything. And he'll say to me like, oh, that is so much worse. I'm like, what, you prefer I yell at your face? He's like, yes, if you would yell at me, <laughs> I know that we're okay. If you keep yeah. it in, then I, that means you really hate me. And, you know, so it's like the interpretation of that is it's very interesting. Um, and you have to be yeah. aware of that, that sometimes your silence can be interpreted a certain way. And also mm. that sometimes your yelling can also be interpreted in a different way. I always think it's so funny. They do this thing here where they, they tell you, you look so tired. And... I always think it's hilarious when we have like uh, British colleagues come over to visit and they say to them, you look so tired. And I tell them, when you say that, it makes them think that you're insulting them, that they look bad. They're like, no, it means I care for them. I'm worried about them. You look so tired, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> you have to be careful about how you phrase things. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so moving on from yelling and shouting to one of my favorite <laughs> questions for guests, what would a perfect day look like to you? You can just paint the, the overall setting. Where might it be? What would you be doing? My perfect day starts with really good coffee and uh, some sort of delicious breakfast. And it would be in a warm tropical place on the beach somewhere where I don't have to be worried about roadmaps or PRDs or talking to clients. Yeah. Okay, so last question. You mentioned you enjoy podcasts. So what's uh, what are one or two podcasts that you would recommend? I, I think I mentioned to you, I, I love uh, Revisionist History, which is by Malcolm Gladwell. That's a, that's a big favorite of mine because I, I, maybe it's just the rebel in me. I love how he kind of takes an idea and breaks it down completely and makes you think about things in a totally different way. And uh, I heard him once say in, in his podcast that... Um, this woman came up to him and she said, you know, I, I listened to this one podcast of yours where you, uh, uh, you, you were talking about what, blah, blah, blah. And I disagreed with everything you said, but I love you. And <laughs> he was like, I want that on my tombstone. I'm like, yes. I, I listened to the episode that you um, recommended, the NPR podcast about... Uh... Oh, the rough translations one. Rough translations, yeah, yeah. That was that was really good. Yeah, I I like that one because it's a, it's a lot about some of the stuff we're talking about, like international experiences, and so the, the the one we that I shared with you was about how all these high tech companies in the U.S. are hiring all these Indian workers, and now they have to talk about like caste discrimination, and and it's just things you never think about in one culture become such an issue in another, and uh, I I think that's fascinating. <laughs>
Yeah, yeah, and I thought they did a really good job of interviewing many different people and showing all the perspectives. And yeah, exactly, because like one person will be totally offended, and another person's like, "No big deal," you know, like we should be talking about these things, and it's okay. So yeah, everybody has a different opinion on everything, and and trying to wade through that is uh, sometimes fun, but sometimes exhausting. <laughs> yeah. So I will put a link to both those podcasts in the show notes. Well. Thank you so much. This has been awesome to hear your experience. Yeah, thank you. I feel very honored that you uh, invited me in. So that's it for episode three. I just want to thank all those who've listened so far and sent me feedback. I really appreciate that. The show will be back in November with episodes four, five, and six. So if you're enjoying this, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, thank you for listening and see you next time.